0: funniest player on the team for me is Belly, and it's the way he delivers, for real. It's like when he delivers his jokes, there's no laugh, and you really can't even tell if he's serious or not. It, we deserve this win, man.
1: Box force five flying high in Motown. Oh, my goodness. I'm feeling great, man. I'm feeling the best I've ever felt. I'm excited. I'm I'm all about winning. I know that the fans here are extremely loyal and passionate. And just like them, I want to become not just a playoff team, but a sustained playoff team and eventually get back to some of that championship success and contention.
0: With the 12th pick in the 2020 NBA Draft, Sacramento Kings select Tyrese Halliburton.
1: Imagine being one of those players that's on a team that, you know, hasn't been in the playoffs in over a decade, almost two decades, a decade and a half, then being the first team to actually get to the playoffs. Just being able to be a part of that would definitely be something special. And if we can, you know, end up building a championship contending team, you're winning a championship in Sacramento. Like that's that's looked at a lot differently. You probably feel better than you do with anything else.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the King's Pulse Podcast, presented by the King's Herald. My name is Brendan Nunez. Uh, happy Fourth of July, everyone! That's when we're recording this one here, and Happy Fourth of July to you, Rich. That's a uh, Mavs draft on Twitter. We're here, and you do Magic drafts stuff now as well. Um, we're here to talk about the the Magic drafts pick and a little bit of Marvin Bagley conversation. But thanks for joining the show, Rich.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this.
0: Yeah, definitely. Glad to have you on here. Good to get some perspective. And I think uh, specifically my idea, I just had an OKC cover on as well, and I'm sure I'll get a Golden State one. I think uh, it seems to be that there's forming a somewhat consensus top six, which you go against the grain a little bit, and I'm definitely going to be interested to talk to you about that. Um, So I think the seven, eight, nine is really kind of where it seems to be up in the air and going to get interesting. So, I think I'm a little more interested in eight, but we're definitely going to talk about five as well and get to some of your, uh, a little bit more against the grain picks. But I want to start with Marvin Bagley. I think I put out a tweet the other day and you were commenting uh, about, you know, Magic's potential interest in Marvin Bagley. Um, it makes sense, you know, as a rebuilding team, it's really looking to acquire young talent. Um, I want to ask you from an outsider's point of view, like, where do you view uh, Marvin Bagley right now? What's your opinion on him and his value?
1: Yeah, so I think obviously he has not lived up to his number two pick uh, status hype, unfortunately, but I don't think he's a bad player by any means. I mean, he's just under a massive microscope. You wouldn't really hear about guys averaging 14 and seven on 50% shooting and 34% from three as a big man as really a bad thing. I think it's just we have come to just completely overanalyze him uh, just because of his slot. And unfortunately, you know, he hasn't added a bunch to winning basketball, but I think when you look at him, you see a guy who I, I really do think it comes down more to makes and misses. Just making more shots would really do him a lot. Like even if it's making one more shot a game would do wonders for a breakout. And and I do think he probably needs a change of scenery, which is why, you know, I commented what I did. And I uh, said, you know, maybe Bamba for him would be something interesting.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, I think so recently I had Jacob Niffin uh, does the uncontested podcast covering the Thunder on. To talk about him um, because I think OKC is the most likely trade candidate for, for Bagley this offseason. Um, a lot of that has to do with he's owed eleven million next season. Um, and and obviously I guess to go back a little bit, you know, it seems like he somewhat wants out of Sacramento. You know, his dad had comments earlier in the year, and Marvin Bagley um didn't shut those down in the media or anything. He didn't exactly back them up. I guess until you could say until recently, I think a lot of Kings fans were freaking out about a. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, a liked tweet from Bagley saying, get Marvin out of Sacramento sort of thing. Um, and the team really needs to clear space if they want to be able to offer Rashawn Holmes, who was, you know, one of the best players on the team last year, uh, more than four years, 47 million. And I think that this is why OKC makes a lot of sense. They have a lot of cap space in the off season um, and they could absorb Bagley's deal for pretty much uh, very minimal asset return when it comes to Cap space, you know, like Kenridge Williams, I think is making just over 2 million. Isaiah Roby is 1.7, something in that range. So the Kings would be able to clear a lot of space and get closer to like a 40 or 60 million mark for um, offering Rashawn Holmes. It's a little different for Orlando, right? Like Orlando doesn't have that space quite this offseason. Um, so, you know, but when before with OKC, I think the offer was picks 34 and 36. I believe that's the right picks that OKC has. Yep. that's um, correct. Yeah, so I, I think that you know it, it depends how somebody would view Bamba, um, but I, I think that there's definitely a first round pick or a, not a first round pick, sorry, but like say pick 33. I think the Kings would try to get thrown in there as well because um, you know Bamba hasn't shown too much, and I think that there totally could be potential ve- developmental minutes for him on this Sacramento roster when you're talking Jamie and Jones and Chimento as your backup center if they don't fill that in the off um, But what do you think of like Bamba and pick 33?
1: I would do it in a heartbeat. The magic, this magic for an office doesn't value second round picks. I think they made one or they made two second round selections in the four years they've been around. One of them was actually the 33rd pick in 2017, which was Wes Wundu. And then they chose uh, not the Justin Jackson currently on the Bucks that was on the Mavs from North Carolina, but they chose the same draft, I think, uh, or maybe the next draft. They took Justin Jackson from Maryland at 42 or 43, and he never played in the NBA. So this front office doesn't really care about second round picks. I think they would be open to it as well.
0: Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think it's a stretch to ask for next year second as well?
1: Uh, I mean, no, like what you said it best. There's really no stretch in any of this, to be quite honest, because Bagley is a far superior player than Mobamba. Right.
0: Yeah. And, and Bamba is in the same sort of financial situation, you know, going into restricted free agency. and And Bagley totally has way more potential to, you know, have interest in free agency. Um, but Bomba's is like a total minimal asset. And um, at that point, the Kings are only um, able to offer homes. I think it's about 52 million um, or just under that. So it's really not making too much of a de- difference when it comes to cap relief for the Kings, which I think is something that's really important and why I still view OKC as the most likely candidate. Um, but I think something here could be interesting, you know, like I think when you're talking about the asset in return for Bagley, you're talking about an early second round pick. Um, and, I actually think that in this class there's some decent wing depth when you're talking um, at that sort of range, and that's something that Sacramento is definitely um, needing here. And can you talk to me, kind of, you know, Orlando switched up a lot of their roster last season. Um, where do you feel like the holes on this roster? Like it would Bagley be competing for minutes with you know Carter, Isaac, Okiki, sort of.
1: To an extent, that is one small issue, but at the same time you're putting in a better player to compete for the same minutes as bomba was so it's really a lateral move you just get a better player competing for it um i do think he doesn't address any of the team needs which honestly is just top-end talent they need to be taking any swing they can get and bagley is one of those swings I, I still am a believer that he can at the least be a rotation rotation player um i think he might be more of a late bloomer at this point is what he's lined up to be but they need wings especially shooters that on the wings so if you know if he's not shooting, he probably doesn't add a ton of value, but it if on a one-year experiment, it's worth it.
0: Yeah. And uh just to throw this out there, because I've seen some Kings fans feeling like this is a possibility. Uh excuse my dog in the background. Does does nine and bagley even move you up to pick eight?
1: Man, that is a tough question. I don't think it does.
0: I, I didn't think there was a chance, to be honest. It's I, closer
1: I, than. I think you'd think then, mm-hmm. but probably no.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I, you know, it is like context reliant, right? Like the guy at eight and nine is probably not going to have much difference between them in this class, I would say.
1: Yeah, it's. I think after seven, there comes a steep drop off. So like that's why that's why I think it's close. That was my exact rationale. Was, you know, you could probably get the same guy you're targeting at eight or nine. You know, or if one right. if he's gone, then the drop off between him and the next guy just isn't much.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll say the guy that I would be worried about the magic taking. And I think you could maybe say the same for Sacramento would be Moody in that spot. Um, but but let's start with five. So, um, you know, I, I think that the consensus top four, um, you have the or you do not. OK, yes. This is where I wanted to talk to you about. So you have Jalen Green sitting at seven. Six. six, six. OK, six. Yes. Yeah, sorry, These numbers confused me on the side here. Um, yeah, you have Jalen Green sitting at six and James Booknight, one above him at five. So talk, talk me through this here. This is a pretty spicy take.
1: Yeah. So my top three is pretty solidified. I think they're all each individual tiers. It's like Cade, Mobley, Slugs. It's almost self-explanatory, um, as to why I like them. And then four to six is almost interchangeable. I have Kamingo, Booknight, and Jalen Green. So I really do think that if all three of them, it, it's tough. I think if all three of them hit their ceiling, it probably goes green Kuminga book night, which is why you know that's probably the order of the three on most boards. But I do have questions about each and every one of them hitting their ceilings, except book night. I just don't. I don't have any questions about him hitting that ceiling. That is something I see him as a twenty points per game night in the league. His athleticism, his play style, and his ability to shoot—they just all it translates so smoothly. We've seen this before. You really can't overthink it. I think it's and and just to clarify, the reason I have book night over Green is more of a testament to how high I am on book night than it is being down on green. Cause I still do love Jalen green for whatever that's worth. I, I just think it comes down to immediate scoring and long-term scoring. I think both favor James book night.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I think one of the first things people would point towards is the shooting number, right? Um, book night is, I, I think a better player, um, especially off the ball. I think his off ball cutting was um, just some of the best in the class here. And I, I see how, you know, he fits in well into an NBA offense. I think I'm a little higher on book than most as well, but that's like, you know, nine, 10 sort of thing. Um, and he's rising a little bit more. I think with time, it wouldn't surprise me if he was a guy that ended up going before the Kings. But um, do you worry about, you know, I, I feel like some of the top of the class and why I would have green over book is I feel like space creation for yourself and be in the ability to knock down jumpers off the dribble. is just extremely valuable in today's league when you're talking about stars um, and I think there's some questions that sit there with book Knight. Are you pretty confident in the, in the long ball translating for him?
1: Yeah, I think he shot himself in the foot a lot in terms of percentages. He just settled for difficult shots and that's just kind of his nature though, is he would try these advanced moves where, and it ended up, they just rimmed in and out. It wasn't like he bricked it terribly. It was just, he took very difficult shots that if he starts making those, which I'm very, very confident, this is why I have him five, that he will, he's unguardable.
0: Yeah, I do see that. You know, there's there's decent free throw indicators for sure. He shot well in his freshman year at UConn as well. So um, I I see where you're coming from. Can you talk to me? I I think I heard you mention this on a pod that you're interested in the book night fit in Sacramento. You know, I think there's a decent chance he's there at nine. We'll talk about him here at eight as well. Um, But talk to me how you feel he would fit alongside Fox and Halliburton.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it first starts the fact that Buddy Field's not going to be there probably, what, three years? I mean, let's, let's be real. They're going to try and move him one way or another by the next three years, I would think, which is yeah. when his contract is up.
0: They've been trying wow. for a while, it seems like. yeah, so. it,
1: It's no secret. Like, this isn't this front office's guy. Um, I think so. First of all, he'd be stepping into that role. But I think the most important thing is, and they tried doing this with Fox and Buddy, is – if you surround Fox with a dynamic score that can play off ball and on ball, which was kind of Buddy's weakness-ish because he can't finish at the rim, I think that's where Booknight kind of separates himself. Like if you put, my comparison for him was Zach Levine. If you put Zach Levine on the Kings, does that not make both him and De'Aaron Fox better? And because of that, that's why I think, you know, you can get James Booknight as a very similar outcome and he plays better defense than Levine did at UCLA when will in the NBA.
0: Yeah. I think that, um, you know, I I wouldn't surprise me if the Kings were looking towards a guy that was a little bit more defensive oriented, because at least personally, I think like Fox Halliburton can handle a lot of the offensive burden, but Atlanta's run specifically, and you've seen this kind of throughout the league, like you can't really have too many creators on the offensive end. Um, So I, I think that if your argument was, you know, you're really just fully buying into the offense and they should have been a better defensive team than they actually were last year. Um, then I I totally see this fit, you know, just a little smaller at six, five, when you're talking for a three, um, but definitely enough to make it work. Like we've seen three guard lineups work in the past. And is this a guy that you expect? Like, it sounds like obviously you would consider him strongly at eight, um, potentially even at five, but do you, does this seem like a guy that like, would you be surprised if Orlando made that pick themselves?
1: At five, I would be surprised at eight. No, I wouldn't be surprised in the least bit. The only concern with that is, Him and Cole Anthony are very similar as prospects. So I would be interested to see the overlap, you know, shot creators, not primary facilitators, and defense could be a swing skill and kind of undersized at their position.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And um, who are the other candidates that you see there at eight? You know, like, is this still – because I think there's some guys when, you know, you think of, like, typically what has Orlando drafted and it seems to be a lot of lengthy defensive prospects, right? Um, I think there's guys like that in this class. Do you think that that's a way that they could look towards like a Moses Moody or maybe a Keon Johnson sort of thing?
1: Yeah. So Moses Moody is definitely near the top of that list. I have him eighth overall, so it falls perfectly in place. I also look at how the Magic just don't have much um, spot up shooting. Gary Harris is there and Terrence Ross, but I don't see him coming back. He's their top shooter right now off ball, and you just need more of those. And, you know, they lost seven Fournier who was an outstanding shooter, one of the best shooters in the league. And while, you know, the Magic weren't winning with him, they still valued that role. And I think Moses Moody steps in and does that. And that's really helpful for them. Um, I think he's a primary target there. But the main thing as to why isn't even the shooting. I think it's the defense. This front office's identity that they've been going after is defense. They want to make their identity just defensive-minded. That's why they got Wendell Carter. They have Jonathan Isaac. They have Markel Fultz. You know, it's it's a defensive-oriented team.
0: Yeah, which makes sense. And do you think that that puts, you know, Scotty Barnes in serious contention at five?
1: See, that's where it gets tricky because it's like how much you, – you need two-way guys, I think, is more. Because Isaac has already been that guy who's a defense-first guy that's yeah. not going to score a lot. Like, he's probably topped out – his points per game probably tops out at near 14, 15. Uh, really not going to be, you know, anything close to 20 or anything like that. So can you afford to have two guys like that? Because that same thing would be said about Scotty Barnes. I'd be shocked if he ever eclipsed, it's like 13 points per game. So can you afford two of those guys in your core? I don't know. In this NBA, that's a really tough task.
0: Yeah, I think totally understandable there. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, assuming nobody falls outside the top four, I mean, like, does it feel like the most likely candidate is Kuminga?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think Kuminga's a lock there. I mean, Orlando has seen a ton of him firsthand in the bubble. Uh, assuming that they were able to be there in any capacity, but you know, just he trains in Orlando. I, I can't imagine that they haven't had a lot of access there.
0: Yeah. And then who are the other names outside of book Knight and Moody that you see in serious contention at eight? Cause I think there could be a good handful.
1: Yeah. I was just about to say, there's a lot three I'll, I'll give three guys. So one of them, I had a realization actually really two of them yesterday. I was like, Oh my God, like this could be the team that does it. There are two guys. Uh, both four and bigs. The first one is Usman Garuba kind of fits that defensive mold up top, depending on what they do with Carter. But that's a tricky one just because they have Carter and Isaac. And, you know, I, I don't know how that blend works. And who knows what they do with Bamba and who replaces him. The other would be Alper and Shengun, uh, who nobody really knows where he could go. I think Orlando could 100% take him. You know, this front office, even though it wasn't their guy, they loved Vucevic. Maybe they see Vucevic 2.0 and Shengun and they take him like that could be the team because it feels like you know some years you get those mystery teams who fall in love with these mystery players yeah um, or well shangoon's not really a mystery but you know the unknown almost of how they translate and shangoon could very much be that guy and the magic might do it the third would be jalen johnson who is a hell of a risk taker uh for Sac- or excuse me for orlando uh given their lack of player development but he kind of has similarities to aaron gordon maybe they can see if they can get what they thought they were getting with Aaron Gordon when they re-signed him.
0: I think all three of those names um, or maybe less so Garuba. Um, hey, unless he does potentially kind of jump up on a lot of boards here. I think that, um, I, I mean, may, uh, I want to ask you about each of these guys. I think they all could be interesting for Sacramento and nine as well for reasons you listed. And let's start with um, Shengu, who is, has a growing hive in the Sacramento fan base. Let me tell you um, he, just scares the shit out of me on defense. And I'm a guy that admittedly loves to watch defense and have been deprived of that the last few years watching Sacramento basketball. <laughs> so this is where I get lost with shang because I do see like, I actually don't think Vucevic is a horrible comp for him. You know, people throw around Sabonis a lot. Like I see it on offense, right? He's a very smart, he's a patient player. I worry that post-ups at 6'9", 6'10", are not going to be as effective against NBA centers. Um, and when people talk about, you know, like I think he has decent timing around the rim, um, but only when he's already there. I think when he's moving in space, obviously he's struggling a lot. Like it seemed like in a lot of these playoff games um, and even the Olympic Games qualifiers that have been going on, like when teams are targeting him on every possession, it's going pretty well for them. Um, and that really concerns me, but even though I do see the offensive upside. Um, do, do you think I'm over worried about the defensive? concerns for shangoon when i see him as like you know potentially like an ennis canter sort of thing on defense
1: so i don't really think so because i think what it does is you could be nicole obicevich right like that's probably his very best outcome right is it not like where you're that all-star center but are you really making your team better defend like unless you're surrounded by great defenders it doesn't really matter what if you're not a good defender like it's it's going to be a disaster so he could drop 20 and 10 but is he going to be able to play a series in the playoffs? Possibly not like him. He really is to me. He's like what Luca Garza was if Luca Garza came out as a freshman and he was the player of the year. Like he's so skilled, and you almost have to take the chance on someone that skilled, that young, and that productive and a pro V. Yeah. But if you're looking long term and trying to really build around him, similar to say how Orlando did with Vucic, you're incredibly limited.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, putting him on a four as the four on the defensive end is also just, you know, I, I think any even average slightly below average defensive four in the, in the league is going to be, or offensive four in the league is going to be able to blow past him and abuse him in space. And it's not like most fours aren't going to be able to set that screen. Same as the five man can. I just don't know, you know, like when, when you're talking about hiding a wing, I, I think it's easier, but I don't think that he has like wing capabilities on the defensive end. So He worries me a little bit, but I do see the offensive upside. Like I get the people that are championing for him at nine for Sacramento. There's just more wing options that I would look towards um, before that. And you mentioned Garuba, who's a guy that we're going to be diving into on our next profile um, here early in the week on this podcast. But um, talk to me about Garuba because I think he's another guy where some people are profiling him as a four and some are as a five.
1: No. So I think he's positionless on defense, but he is absolutely a five on the offense because He just is kind of useless outside of two areas. He's a very much analytical player on the offensive end. He'll pass. um, He can hit corner threes and he finishes shots, usually off dump offs. He kind of lacks explosiveness on, um, on drive. So he's really limited as a slasher or even just one dribble outside of the restricted area. So he's, you're going to get him and you're going to see a massive defensive improvement, but you also Well, see that he's an offensive liability very early in his career, especially. So you have to be able to have the offense to surround him. If you really want to maximize what he can do on the defensive end.
0: Yeah. And personally, that's the way I would lean towards for Sacramento. Um, But I understand people not quite feeling that way. I mean, ideally, I think you just get a, uh, a guy that is a positive impact on the defensive end and just somewhat of a connector on offense. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, I do see the appeal with Garube. Is he the best offensive big you have in this class outside of Mobley?
1: Yeah, I actually have him above, just because he's he's almost a flawless player on the defensive end. Mobley, you could make the argument has some flaws in like he can sometimes come and go on awareness. It comes down to that nitpicking stuff. Um, I have Garuba as number one defender. Wow, wow,
0: yeah. I'm I'm excited to dive into his film here soon. Um, Definitely high praise. Uh, I'm going to check out. I know you just dropped a scouting report today, too, actually, huh? Yep. Yeah, so I will uh, definitely retweet that from the KP account. So everybody check that out, and I'll uh, definitely be reading it not too long after here. Um, I, I think that, you know, Kai Jones is somebody that's mocked to the Kings a lot because everybody's talking about Holmes is probably walking this offseason, which is a good chance unless they're able to clear space like we were talking about earlier. How do you feel about Jones on uh, the defensive end and then also kind of some of his fluidity that translates on both ends of the floor, actually?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I like Kai Jones a lot. He's a unicorn potential. Uh, You kind of look at, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. out of Memphis, a lot of similar traits in terms of uniqueness. So if you're looking for someone with that high upside big man, but also could bust, Kai Jones is the great pick for it because he can hit like jab step threes. He can sit in the stance guard one through five. He's really unique. You don't see that come around very often.
0: Yeah. Yeah. um, High defensive upsides definitely intrigued me. I I just uh, worry that, you know, when you're just a defensive or even any of these big man, like when you're talking about these big men compared to these wings, 80th percentile outcome, I feel like most of the time um, when you're talking these high upside guys that it works out more often than not for the wings rather than the big man, at least just value around the league. Right. Like an average big man is going to have less value than an average wing. Um, So that's where I lean. Like if I'm taking an upside swing um, in any sort of role, I'd rather go towards like a Jalen Johnson. I I think you're lower on like a Zaire Williams um, sort of thing. But I I think like if I'm looking for an upside swing, I would rather uh, swing with a wing than a big man.
1: Yeah, which is a very acceptable approach, especially considering the you know if both hit the wing is always going to be more valuable right like every single title team i think in the last like 15 years has been led by a wing outside of like the spurs so right. i mean even then actually yeah one time the spurs in
0: 2007 yeah yeah um so that that's where i'm at with that and you know the one other guy i want to really uh take a second to talk about here with you that i, I think is popular among some magic fans i've seen as well and I, i'm a advocate of him in sacramento i think i have him and moody as my two favorites is franz wagner um you have him a little bit lower here where are your concerns you have him at 19 where are your concerns with wagner
1: yeah so i think he does have a really high four um which i, I, I don't see him being a bust candidate but i do think i, I just think his ceiling is kind of low and he has a lot of good tools. He can put the ball on the fork and defend. I don't know if he, I don't know if I buy the shot a ton. And mm. frankly, if it's not around average, it reduces a lot of his effectiveness being a you know jack of all trades guy.
0: Yeah. It it almost strikes me as like a a Covington-esque. And obviously all comps are flawed, but like a guy that's not actually that high level of a three-point shooter, but is willing to get him up and have some gravity on that end and then is making the most of his difference on the defensive end. And at six, eight, I mean, there's definitely some value in that. And I, it's hard for me to, you know, like I, I think that there is an argument for the Kings to take an upside swing because this is, it's supposed to be the highest they pick for a little while. Right. Um, but I, I think if you're getting, you know, no value from this ninth pick at all in a couple of years, because you took a swing and it, and it just didn't happen to work out um, that, that scares me. So that's why some of these guys uh, like Wagner and Moody, more specifically, um, because I think Moody is a high floor guy that also has some potential ceiling with this off the dribble shooting. That's why those two guys really intrigued me for Sacramento at nine. And I-, I would be very shocked if they were both gone at that point.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the the top 10 is almost unpredictable and a lot of people have Moody falling, but I I just can't see him personally. Yeah. Dropping into the 11.
0: Yeah. I've seen Moody at like 16 and that's just, it's crazy to me. I don't see it. Yeah. Is there um on that point, you know, there's been some people talking about the Kings potentially trading down like nine to 16 and 18. I mean, do you think that's something that like you would consider for Orlando at eight or is it too big of a tier difference between those spots for you?
1: Man, I think it's about quality over quantity for Orlando, especially because when they have like seven young guys, they're all trying to figure out. I, I think they should, if they're that comfortable with someone, they like it. 13, 15, whatever number you want to put it at, just take them at eight. Like in this class, the tier yep. really after seven or so there's a drop off. Like you can, I don't know. I think you can take that swing and live with it at eight.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. Um, definitely was not a fan of doing nine for 16 and 18. I think like, you know, it's different if you're at draft night and say Moody does actually fall to 16. guy okay, You would have taken at nine anyways, then like, I, I guess, sure. You know, but that's obviously a more complicated situation. Um, and you're not going to know until that point, but yeah. So, okay. So Kuminga feels like, g- give me your two top two, most likely guys at five.
1: Yeah. I think it's, I really do think it's going to come down to Kuminga and Scotty Barnes. If it were me, we'd come down to Kuminga and book night, but I think Kuminga is the common denominator. Yeah.
0: And then who do you think the three most likely candidates at eight are? You can Man, give me more I, if I you really need.
1: Do think, I think it's going to be Moses Moody, Jalen Johnson, and Alperin Sengun. I, I think that's going to be the trio.
0: Wow. Yeah. Do you think, um, think Booknight gets considered at seven?
1: I'd, I'd, I'd really be surprised if the Warriors pass up on. I know they love Davion Mitchell, and that's going to yeah. throw a lot off. But I, 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 don't, I really just have a hard time seeing both the Thunder and the Warriors passing up on a high-level score, which is like perfect for what they need next to their core.
0: Yeah, I, I want to say that um the two that Vicini mentioned recently that he's heard linked to Golden State a lot is Book Knight and Mitchell, right? Um, which yeah, I mean if if the either of those guys go seven, I, I just like I've said I want one of Wagner and Moody personally. Um I could also do Jalen Johnson. Um I, I'm interested in Josh Giddy, but I think this is a... My, my co-host usually on here, Bryant, is a draft guy as well. Um, and he calls it a, a profile high when you're just getting over watching so much of this guy's film that you're just feeling a little bit more optimistic than you probably should. And I can't tell you how fun it was to watch Josh Giddy film because he almost feels like a unicorn of sorts with his um, offensive passing. And I think he has displayed like he knows where he should be on defense and is in the spots, but isn't really doing anything when he's there, which I don't know what to do with. Um, when it comes to you know, is he ever an average defender sort of thing? Um, so Giddy's really interesting to me, and like there's just this idea in my head of so much ball movement with Fox, Halliburton and Giddy, and that really optimizing like play finishers like Buddy Heald and Rashawn Holmes, and I think like Bagley could fall into that category if he accepted it. Um, but I, I mean, I do think like he's a stretch at nine, but I think that there's some interesting potential guys there. Shingun is going to be a popular one, but. Yeah, for me, I'm really uh, Wagner and Moody there.
1: Yeah. And you actually brought up a good point about Giddy. Um, That would be an interesting fit because Halliburton not only exceeded expectations just all around as a shooter, but he shot off the dribble very well and like with legit sample size too. So I think that actually makes someone like Giddy a little bit easier because a year ago, if you had said those two guys, I would have laughed at you because I didn't expect Halliburton to be able to shoot off the dribble. And I don't expect giddy to, and I'm actually much more confident in that, uh, than, than Halliburton, but yeah, having those three guys, I feel like that'd be kind of tough with spacing. Just, I also don't buy giddy's defense. His hips are pretty weak. You can tell he struggles to turn his hips on change of direction. I I don't buy that at all. Uh, but he has the same thing as Halliburton where it's like the form is not pretty, but it sometimes goes in. Halliburton had real success though, with it in college, but giddy his spot up shooting, I think will actually be very good. And that's why I think it could work.
0: Yeah. And I, I just, again, that's something where you're completely buying the offense. Right. And I think the idea is that, um, any of those guys and, you know, I think that Gideon Halliburton are going to need to utilize a screen, but Fox could do it on his own. If they're able to swing the ball to any of the other three in that trio, In an already advantageous situation, I think that, you know, just having three super high IQ players out there like that and the ball movement left to right the way that Walton does, you know, it's one of the few things that I'll say. I I think high IQ players do really well in Walton's freelance system. Um, And I think that Giddy falls into that. So, but it can't say that you really want to sit here and be like, yeah, I'm going to pick this guy because he fits really well with Luke Walton. So that's where I'm at with that. Um, you're one thing before I get you out of here, I wanted to ask you, you you definitely have a lot deeper board than I do. Um, what sort of, you know, I've heard, and I I have a good idea of the names here as obviously, but that there's a lot of wing depth at, um, in this draft, how deep do you think it goes where you're really talking about potential rotational wings? You know, like I think, B.J. Boston upside swing, Trey Murphy a little bit safer, right? Even like a a Marcus Bagley, I know Kessler Edwards sort of range. Is there a lot of wings you feel like that'll be available in the second round of this draft?
1: I think the second round is filled with depth. I have about 10 guys uh, that would be legitimate options. I think actually if you're looking for guards, that's where I would do it. You know, we talked about Giddy for a minute. Um, so if you wanted someone, I think second round guard would be the best value play, but wing is a very valuable, uh, position in the second round. There's just, it's very deep. I mean, it goes on my positional rankings. I have, um, six wings that get a first round grade six and a half because I'm still undecided on Trey Murphy. And then after that, it's my number seven, uh, seven and a half, whatever to 23 are all just like incredibly talented and I can see all of them going. So actually even more, that's where I would probably take a chance on a wing.
0: Yeah. And I think that's where, um, you know, Bagley's kind of, uh, it seems like, you know, just counting down until he eventually has moved on from. And I think that, you know, I I wouldn't mind a, you know, 33rd pick sort of in return there and you're just, uh, trying to fill out some more wing talent on this roster. I don't think this is the worst year for that sort of trade. Even if Bagley undeniably has a higher upside, it's just kind of time for him to move on here. And maybe, maybe Orlando is a team that ends up, uh, pulling the trigger on that, even if it wouldn't clear great space for the Kings this offseason in any home situation. But yeah, definitely something interesting there. Um, I want to thank you, Richard, for coming on the show, man. Again, it's at Mavs Draft on Twitter, and I can't say enough how great the draft work is you do, man. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your thoughts.
1: Hey, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, and thank you to everybody for listening to this episode of the Kings Pulse podcast. Um, definitely check out all the great work going on at Kings Herald and take a look at the Patreon to support local independent Kings coverage. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, write and review we'll Hear from us again in the next couple of days here.